Calvary Church is located in beautiful Peterborough, Ontario, and is committed to impacting that community with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. Each week, one of our preaching team draw powerful life application truths from the Bible. Check us out here or online at calvaryptbo.church. Today is our final message in the series on the book of Acts that was intended to challenge us about being action figures. People called by God, empowered by His Holy Spirit, out there in the world living every single day, rubbing shoulders with all kinds of people, and allowing the Holy Spirit to direct our lives and use us in unbelievable ways. That's our goal. That's our purpose. That's our hope. I also get to talk about the final section in the book of Acts. And, and every one of the, the speakers um, in this series, the biggest challenge has been when you're looking at eight chapters in the book of Acts, what do you pick? Where do you start? How do you focus your direction? But in the final section of the book of Acts, I, I think it's a series or a section that could easily be called Paul's Farewell Tour. Now, in our society today, we're accustomed to farewell tours, musicians and, you know, especially performers. They'll say, I'm, I'm going to retire and, uh, you know, th this is the last chance that you have to hear us. And so they travel around and they book out, you know, auditoriums all over the place and it's a concert that's sold out long before the actual concert date comes. Paul's farewell tour was a little bit different than that. He didn't have cancer or some illness. He had a call of God upon his life. Tracy last Sunday said the thing about Paul is He's always on mission, always pursuing the, the goal that was set before him. He wasn't retiring or retreating, but instead he was being redirected. And he had a sense that God had before him a new season. It could be the last season. He didn't know how long it was going to be. But he sensed that there was a redirection and a repurposing coming in his life. There was an increased sense of urgency to Paul's actions and words during this final phase of his life and his ministry. Now, on the surface, if we look at the book of Acts, we would read it and believe that Paul went on three missionary journeys, was then imprisoned in Palestine for a couple of years, transported under guard by a ship to Rome, a journey that included being shipwrecked on the island of Malta, and he spent a couple of more years under house arrest in Rome. End of story, right? Mm, not so quick. Not so quick. That's where the book of Acts ends, but that is not where the story is completed. There are enough biblical hints and historical nuggets floating around to suggest 
quite clearly that Paul's martyrdom did not happen during the period described in the book of Acts. He appeared before Nero during his house arrest in Rome. That's true. But there's substantial evidence that he was released and embarked on what some people call a fourth missionary journey. Paul had always talked about going to Spain, which in those days was the end of the earth. It, it was about as far as you could go. Oh yes, there were some people up there in, in uh, what eventually became Great Britain, but at that time Spain was about as far as you wanted to go. And uh, there's good evidence that Paul embarked on a journey that took him as far as Spain and then back through cities like Crete and Ephesus and Miletus, Troas, various cities in Macedonia, Corinth, visiting with Timothy and Titus and the churches in Ephesus and Colossae that he had written letters to, probably ended, not for sure, but many people believe in the city of Nicopolis. And after Paul's second arrest, he was taken to Rome and is, was imprisoned, not in a house like the first time, but probably in the notorious and cold Mamertime prison around the time that Nero started to unleash his persecution on the Christians in Rome. And during his time in prison, Paul found time to write a second letter to Timothy, which gives us a few of the hints that when, when you put it together and realize that it was his second imprisonment, a lot of the things that he says to Timothy make a lot more sense. And uh, Timothy tells us that he was visited by, see if I can get this out right, Onesiphorus. And I think I got closer this time than the first time. And um, that was the slave of Philemon. Um, he was visited by this particular individual. He was abandoned by many of the Christians during his deepest trial. Um, a lot of the Christians just, you know, walked away. He was deserted by his close friend and, and ministry friend, Demas. Paul was aided by the physician, Luke, uh, who attended to his needs. And at the same time, you know, of course, wrote the book of Luke, the book of Acts. Um, and eventually, the suggestion is that Paul was beheaded rather than being thrown to the wild beasts or some other inhumane treatment because he was a Roman citizen. And as we pick up the story this morning in chapter 20 of Acts, I, I want to lay out a theme and get you to think about this as we read through the story. The theme is finishing well. Finishing well. And I want us to see this morning what we can learn from the Apostle Paul that helps us in our everyday journey towards the finish line. And so in chapter 20, beginning to read at verse 17, it says, And from Miletus Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And when they arrived, he said to them, You know how I have lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day that I came to the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears 
and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. And you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me, but my only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. And then I'm going to jump down, I'm going to go to about two or three more places. I'm going to skip the part about the journey and the boats and how they got to different places, but look at the groups of people that he connects with on this farewell tour. It says in verse 36 that when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and he prayed. And they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him, and what grieved them the most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And then over into chapter 21, verses 3 to 5, it says, And after sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria and landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. And we sought out the disciples there, and we stayed with them seven days. And through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And when it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way, and all of them, including the wives and children, accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. Finally, down to verse 10. It says, and after we had been there, this time talking about Caesarea, after we had been there a number of days, <clears throat> a prophet named Agabus came from Judea. And coming over to us, he took Paul's belt and tied it around his own hands and his feet and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But Paul answered and said, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. An interesting story here as Paul begins this farewell tour, this final journey, that he's confronted by several people. And he says, in every city I went to, I seem to hear this theme that there is persecution and imprisonment 
that lies before me. The thing I find fascinating as in the passage that we read is that Paul and all the disciples in Tyre and the prophet Agabus, they all got the same message. Paul, you're going to face persecution. Paul, you're going to be imprisoned if you go to Jerusalem. The message they got was the same. And in all three places, it said that the Holy Spirit was the source of the message. Paul said, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem. And the uh, disciples in Tyre, it says, through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go. And in the final passage, Agabus gets up and he says, the Holy Spirit says, you know, they're going to take this, and he gave a little bit of an object lesson, took Paul's belt and wrapped it around. He said, in this same way, the religious leaders are going to bind the person who owns this belt. And the Christians that heard that message said, Paul, please don't go to Jerusalem. They all got the same message, but Paul got a different application than the rest of them. Everybody else said, obviously, Paul, you shouldn't go. And Paul said, stop your weeping, stop your crying. This is a God thing. Why was Paul so determined to ignore the, the seemingly prudent and spirit-anointed messages that came to him through believers in the church? Well, first of all, this wasn't his first rodeo. This wasn't the first time Paul had been through trials and persecution and faced physical hardship. He had learned not to let negative circumstances deter him and distract him from doing what God had called him to do. He knew that God could get him through those situations. There were some situations where Paul was stoned and left for dead. There were others where God opened the prison doors for him. And it was sort of like the story of the three Hebrew children in the book of Daniel that uh, were told to bow down before the image of the, the emperor. And they said, we can't do that. And the king said, or the emperor said, well, then, you know, we're going to throw you into that fiery furnace. And they said, well, <laughs> do what you have to do, but we can't bow down. And it's interesting because they said, our God is able to save us even in the fire. But you always need to be prepared to put this little tag on the end. But if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down. And that's what Paul was saying. God is able to protect me. He's done it before. But even if he doesn't, I'm ready not only to be bound, but even to die if that's what he asks me to do because he was convinced he was in the center of God's will. And if we measure what God's will for our life is by whether the circumstances are bad or good or to our liking or not to our liking, we're never going to know what God's will is. Amen? You better believe it even if you didn't say amen. If that's how you measure God's will, you're in for some rough days. But Paul was convinced he was in the center of God's will. The finish line was in sight. The cost was not an issue. 
It was not an issue. And if you look at the keys to Paul's success, there are a few. First of all, he realized that even well-intentioned believers don't always understand the call of God on your life. And I know there's many people in this room that have experienced that work. I'm not talking about doing foolish things or doing unbiblical things, but where God puts a sense of direction and a, and a sense of purpose in your heart and life and asks you to take certain steps and do certain things, and everybody around you looks and says, that doesn't seem to make sense. But God says, my ways are higher than yours, my thoughts than yours. And Paul knew that even well-intentioned believers might not always understand what God was calling him to do. He'd learned how to weather the storms. He had a deep-rooted relationship with Christ. It was built through adversity, and it was built for adversity. And that's the way God does it. He brings things into our life. Why? So that we can build strength and muscles and resources and spiritual maturity that will take us through the next thing that is coming down the road. Paul's discipline and Paul's Christian life was built through adversity and it was built for adversity. He knew how to weather the storms of life. Gordon MacDonald, in one of his books, tells the story about a guy who was building a ship and he got right into it. The, the ornate outrigging and he had gorgeous sails. He put teakwood flooring all throughout the ship, had the latest navigational equipment and a paint job that was just immaculate. He used nothing but the best materials and this ship was just awesome. But when it came to the keel, he, he cut a few corners. And he didn't quite put the weight in the keel that he was told he should. Because he said, after all, who sees the keel? His ship was the talk of the town until the first violent storm when he went out and he was capsized. So the man who went out into the harbor amid great applause came back in shame. Why? Because as Gordon MacDonald says, he failed or forgot to build below the waterline. And what's below the waterline is more important than what's above. The tragedy for so many Christians today is that we get caught up in the sails and the wood and the equipment and all of the, the things above the waterline. And the soul, which is below the waterline, it's, it's harder to get at. It's more difficult to build properly. And so oftentimes we simply end up responding to life's pressures and life's demands and at a time when we should be building even more intensely below the waterline, we get distracted by what's above the waterline. Until one of those moments of 
disruptions come into our life. You know what I'm talking about? You ever had one of those? Are you in one of those moments right now? They come to all of us. Loss of a job, financial downturn, broken relationships and marriages, crises, physical challenges, any number of things we could talk about. But when those moments of disruption come, all of a sudden, everything above the waterline doesn't matter one little bit. We haven't built the way the water needs. We capsize. Do you know when plants and trees grow the most? might be tempted to think it's on one of those days when there's just a warm, gentle rain. One of those days in the summer when you don't even worry about an umbrella. You just, just like to go out and enjoy the warmth and the wet and it soaks into the ground. And but scientists tell us that that's not when plants and trees grow the most. They grow the most when the wind is blowing and the storm is howling and the pressures are pulling at it and their roots go down as deep as they can get, and they wrap themselves around anything they can. Rocks and, and buildings and, you know, something solid. And it's in those moments that plants actually grow the most. And so when the storms come into our life, we need to be like Paul and put our roots down deep and build our relationships strong in those moments of adversity for the moments of adversity. Paul was able to run the race. Paul was able to finish well because he had deep roots in place. Finish well. Finish well. When I use that phrase, we could so easily think that I'm only talking about the finish line. But I'm not. Because finishing well doesn't just happen at the finish line. In the Christian life, we're not competing with each other, and winning is not just coming first. And while it's true that we can start well and run well, but not finish well, and some people do that, it's equally true that many people don't finish the race because well, some never signed up in the beginning or some started poorly and gave up along the way, or they got tired because of the pressures and they lost sight of the goal. I read of a professor at a Christian college who decided to go on a thousand-mile backpacking trip with his son from British Columbia to Southern California. Now, that might sound easy, but take a look at the map and follow that path through Washington and Oregon and California, and you realize that it was a rigorous trek. And what they discovered as they were preparing for that trek is that over 90% of those who set out 
to hike more than 500 miles never make it. Never make it. 50% never get started. You ever thought, ah, oh, I'd really like to go on a marathon. I'd really like to do, just ask Sheree, you know, and, and you know, if you really want to go on a marathon, talk to her first. 50% of people never ever start. Their good intentions never get them to the place of actually putting a date on it and buying equipment and saying, all right, I'm going to do this. 50% never start. 40% somewhere between starting and before the race ever comes. Only 10% ever finish a long-distance hike. Our traditional emphasis on the finish line ignores a greater peril that faces us as Christians. The Christian life, when we talk about finishing well, involves every single part the journey, how you start, how you run, what you decide to do today and tomorrow are part of how you're going to finish the race. It's every single moment. It's every single day that is part of finishing well. There's a gospel song that uh, I've heard, I've sung sung by Karen Peck in New River. It's entitled Finish Well. Part of the lines of it say this, so wherever he may lead us, whatever it may cost, let the church arise and lift the banner of the cross. Finish well every day that we are given. Finish well for the glory of his name. Finish strong until the Savior calls you home. Give it everything we have. Finish well. This morning I want to emphasize that finishing well doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't just happen. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4 and 7, and I, I read from the King James Version because the three phrases are so familiar. He says this, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I've kept the faith. That's a good three-point sermon. I should preach it sometime, just not today, right? I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. It speaks of a disciplined life. It speaks of a directional life. It speaks of a determined life. And if I could sort of flip it around into contemporary English, and say, what's the lesson for us today? This is how I'd like to phrase it. No regrets, pedal to the metal, finish line in sight. No regrets, pedal to the metal, finish line in sight. But my challenge to you is this, don't wait until tomorrow think about finishing start today I don't care whether you're 20 or 40 or 60 we're all at different places in our life and for some of us it may seem like the journey is pretty short but I want to tell you something 
if you were to decide today to be serious about no regrets, pedal to the metal, finish line in sight, you could change the course of your journey and change how you finish the race. and you say, oh, I've got lots of time. I don't need to worry about that today. I don't need to live quite as, as disciplined and as intensely as somebody who's 60. Uh-uh. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Because finishing starts today. The biggest lie that Satan uses to convince us distract us is that we have lots of time. There's no urgency. Do it tomorrow. But let me encourage you with this. Don't wait for a storm to find out that you haven't built below the waterline. Don't wait until the wind is blowing like it was on Friday and the trees are leaning over and the rain is pouring down. Don't find out then that you haven't built below the waterline. Decide today to finish well. Whatever storm is in your life, whatever circumstances are around you, I encourage you, face your storm. Like Paul did. He said, I know where God is calling me. I know what he's wanting me to do. And I'm going to go no matter the cost. Face your storm. Find God in your storm. He's right there. And finish well. Father, this morning, I pray by your Holy Spirit that you would just drive your words into our hearts, that we would not let go of them quickly or lightly. we would say, God, I know you've been tugging at me. I know you've been trying to get my attention. God, I know you have something for me to do. Help me not to put it off. But to determine in our heart to start today. team is going to lead us in one more song this morning. But I encourage you to just make yourself available to the Holy Spirit. Whether you sit in your seat, whether you find a place of prayer here at the front, whether you've been on the journey for 50 years, or whether you've never invited Jesus Christ into your Say, God, take me.